Hello and welcome to What So What Now What. If you missed our previous episode, you'll have missed a brief update about the new format we're going to be approaching this podcast with this year. And so today is actually a bit. It's going to be about Hyper and I'm joined by my co-host Ravi. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How was your new year? Um, new year was good. It was. It's. Um, I'm slowly getting back into the swing of things. So it's a nice, easy, easy way back in um, after a bit of a, the chaotic, chaotic Christmas period. So we're going to be talking about hyper. <laughs> Absolutely, we're going to be talking about hyper. Um, I'm really excited about this because this this technology has actually been around for a while, and definitely in the tableau sphere, it's it's definitely something that we've all started using and have almost forgotten. Um, sort of when it was introduced and, and how it was introduced. So we just wanted to take a, a, a deep dive into the technology and just highlight mm-hmm. why it matters. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's it's interesting. So Hyper was dropped in Tableau 10.5, right? Um, yeah. It was an acquisition. So I think they bought it in um, around Easter time 2016. Mm-hmm. I think it was March. Um, and it's basically a technology that was developed in um, Munich by a, a couple of Germans. Um and it's it's an it's basically an academic uh, endeavor. There was a project or something that they worked on, and mm-hmm. they were looking for a bit more financial backing. And Tableau came in and purchased them because I think Tableau also wanted to move on from the TDE. So taking a quick quick step back, so what these two technologies, TDE and Hyper, uh, these two file types are, they're they're, they're extracts of um, data. So what you're doing when you connect to a database um, on Tableau or even an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you have the ability to extract that data into a um, what was formerly a Tableau data extract or what's now a hyper extract. Um, and when it was demoed, I think the first time it was demoed was in Austin, um, 2016. Um, the biggest excitement was the speed increase yeah. uh, and the speed of processing it, it brought and the fact that you can query um, millions and millions of records of data on the fly and it's so much faster to extract and the processing is so much better. But I think um, when we when we dug a bit dip, deeper into this, we found out there's a lot more going on um, than just what we see. Which is like when you when you when you, like I mentioned in the previous podcast, I'm very much a I just need to know what it is and so mm-hmm. I can explain it. You know, have mm-hmm. that have that one liner that you mention so you don't sound stupid. Um, and for me, it was like, oh yeah, it's just a lot faster. It's processes and extract a lot a lot quicker. But I've never really ended up digging into like okay, but what is it like it's is it a database is it an extract like how does that actually all that all that work so um that that's what hyper is how, how have you find found digging a bit deeper into hyper tim yeah it's it's an interesting one because speed is often the thing that everyone talks about and i think after that you, you just kind of put put the technology to bed and i think that's actually a mistake um Hyper is a lot more than just about speed. And to sort of dig into it, you have to kind of go back to its its founding principles. And um, it, it was actually derived from an academic uh, background. And essentially, it was spun off by, you know, two Germans who were trying to understand why today's databases were so slow and had so many trade-offs compared to some of the hardware and technologies that we have available to us today. And so mm-hmm. the, the core principles were very, very simple. They both wanted to build one system. Uh, this meant that you only needed to have one database that could serve the purposes of being transactional um, or an analytical database or sort of uh, beyond relational kind of um, uh, infrastructures as well. Um, they wanted it to have 
to have it in one state so that you didn't you didn't need to have for example with the tde when you add data to it you can't extract the data and be reading data from it at the same time so they wanted it to be able to be accessible in multiple states and then the other uh, side of it they wanted no trade-offs yeah um given those those requirements and they wanted no delays so speed is actually only one of the four key factors that they wanted to sort of implement into this and i think as we dig into this um, I must stress, we're going to be talking about concepts that are actually, uh, unless you dig into the research papers and you understand a lot of the terms around them, we're going to be massively simplifying some of these concepts yeah. just so that we can, <laughs> so we can A, have a discussion that you and me can keep up with, but also B, um, uh, relay them back to you in a way that kind of makes sense. Um, so we're going to be using a lot of analogies and metaphors and oversimplification of a lot of concepts. Um, but we just want to stress that up front before we go into it. Sure. And I, th I think it's also worth stressing that neither me nor Tim have a hard background in commuting in terms of ac academia. Um, I'm, I'm an economist and Tim, what did you study again? I'm a generalist, uh, management. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So like the, the, this sort of top level view is really, um, really useful for us as well. So it, it's breaking down these concepts so we understand them. And then mm -hmm. also you, our listeners, can can understand them a bit better as well. Um, I think what you mentioned there about computational power is really, really um, quite interesting because it's it's that sort of the rate of innovation is so much faster in the last 10 years, even versus the pre previous decade. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, the, the 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 tweet going around very uh, a lot is that 1999 was now 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's we've, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's yeah, exactly. And, and the, the leaps and bounds of that, that we've gone through in what we do and how we access content and information has changed so much but fundamentally the computer power that generates this that makes all of these things possible you know the fact that i can play fortnite on my phone is possible because you know the the apollo 11 computer that landed on the moon had like a thousand times less power than like the iphone 5 um yeah. like yeah. it's we've condensed so much technology into smaller things but it's the question of have the wider enterprise level of technology is kept up and I'd, I'd argue no, um, based on what we found. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 so we're kind of gently moving into the so what uh, so what era here, mm -hmm. and 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 so to summarize, you know, Hyper is you know as Tableau terms it a next gen database system, right? Um, it's not a database that you can buy off the shelf today. Tableau uh, definitely haven't yet spun it off as a database, but it's uh, it's the driving engine behind um, Tableau Server, Tableau Desktop, and pretty much most of the new kind of innovations from Tableau. And so if we do take that step back and start to think of the so what, um, Ravi, you touched on the computing landscape, yeah. and I think it's important to take that step back and just sort of, um, you know, touch on a, a couple of points regarding hardware and hardware capabilities of today versus 20 years ago. And so the, the simplest thing you can look at is hard drives. I mean, um, I remember buying a hard drive, you know, one of those USB pen drives and <laughs> the most you could get on it was four megabytes. And that was, that was, that was revolutionary because the floppy disk I used to have could only contain, you know, 500 kilobytes, right? That's what three uh, songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and now, like, you know, just to download one Instagram photo, it, it, you know, requires more than just, you know, 500 kilobytes or whatever you could fit on a floppy disk. And mm -hmm. so the, the cost of computing has come down massively. 
And the hard drives is one aspect, but the other aspect that people don't of, often talk about is memory. And by memory, I don't mean um, you know uh, memory in your hard drive. I'm talking about random access memory. So this is this is the the kind of memory that your computer uses to store information whilst it processes it. Yeah. Yeah. So short-term information, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, th this is kind of how computers were built. They were they were built with this sort of logic in mind, and so. The, the, way, the way a typical computer works is you have information stored on your hard drive and your computer needs to process something. It takes some of that information and whilst it's processing it, it leaves it on the um, memory so that if you need that information again, it can pick it up and process it or carry on processing it. So if you do something like Photoshop editing, that is a mostly in-memory process because it has to keep all that information in memory so mm -hmm. you can keep on editing your, your image. And if you look at the price of memory, um, you know, from 1994... Um, to pretty much where we are today, it's gone from you know costing roughly you know forty five thousand dollars for a megabyte <laughs> down to being under two dollars to the point where today you can buy a one terabyte uh, RAM system for about fifteen thousand dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, but for one terabyte of random access memory, that's that's just revolutionary, and so it brings a lot of sort of capabilities into scope. Um, the other aspect, obviously, is also that the, the computer, the thing that processes that information, that has also been progressing forward. So, you know, back in the day, you used to have uh, single core computers. I remember some sort of revolution when you could start having dual core CPUs and everything just got insanely faster. And ever since then, what you've seen in computing is Moore's law is starting to slow down because we're reaching the theoretical limit of what's possible in terms of physical architecture today. So, so, so Tim, what, what is Moore's law? So Moore's law is a simple law that this guy called Moore's came up with. And it basically suggests that every two years, the number of transistors that you can fit in a given space doubles. Okay. And so, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, 1970, that number was about a thousand. And where we are today is that number is about 20 million. And it's actually getting harder and harder to squeeze more transistors into <laughs> into that space. It's it's actually peaking off. So it's no longer this exponential effect that you'd see on a graph if you use the logarithmic scale. Yeah. So what's interesting about that, what you mentioned there was like, you know, I remember I was very young at the time, but I remember when the dual core processor came out, I was like, it's a dual core processor. You know, you see the adverts saying like, <laughs> it's yeah. dual core, I can fit two into this. And now yeah. we're at like quad core and now on bats and eyelid, right? Like it's yeah. it's like, oh yeah. yeah, of course it's quad core. What else would it be? In fact, it's it's almost seen as uh you know, the number of cores going up is almost now seen as a, a almost lesser technological advancement compared to being able to produce your circuitry at a smaller level. So you'll often hear right, exactly. real estate. Yeah, real estate. So the difference between a 14 nanometer circuitry and seven nanometer circuitry. So um, it's literally exactly as it sounds. Uh, the circuitry is uh, much, much smaller on a seven nanometer process compared to a 14 nanometer. And so what that allows you to do is use less power because you don't have as much circuitry to run power through. And that means you also have less resistance, all this, you know, wonderful physics stuff. Mm -hmm. But it also means you can fit more powerful units into a smaller amount of space. And that is what's more important for things like phones and computers and laptops. It means cooling is easier. It means you can you can um, sort of get advantages from being able to do things in, in sort of interesting ways. 
Um, and so things even like neural networks and sort of uh, AI architecture is easier to do because you can fit them in smaller and smaller spaces. Yeah, and just just a point on nanometers, um, it's like a strand of DNA is two and a half nanometers in diameter. Yeah. So, so we're getting really, really small. And also exactly. there's, <laughs> there's also like... Just be, uh, there's there's differences in in the different types of seven nanometer processes you can get. So, for example, Intel's version of seven nanometer isn't the same as uh, Qualcomm's version of seven. Oh, nanometer. really? It's, it's 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 yeah. It's not like a an industry standard. It's simply the name for a process. But it actually, when you get into the nit nitty gritties, each sort of uh, supply or uh, you know f fabrication um, chip fabrication. Uh, company will have slightly different ways of getting those benefits um even it going into like things like 3d architectures which which is just way beyond this podcast but yeah um, <laughs> right so we're kind of getting sidetracked there but if we go back to the overarching story here the simple fact is that computers uh, are getting faster and more capable the hardware has changed massively since 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But many of the databases, many of the principles we rely on are much older than 20 years ago. And so if we if we drill into, you know, why is hyper so revolutionary, we can actually start to address some of these um, some of these concepts right from the top. And, and so let's maybe just go through some of those. Um, there, there's 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 really three or four key key concepts here of why hyper is fast unlike its competitors and I, i'll say competitors in this sense because if you're going to compare it um to other databases you have to view other databases as competitors even though it's actually not a product um and so the first the first one is query optimization now query optimization is something i think we're all familiar with for tableau when you're writing a query or when you're building a tableau workbook one of the things you might do is look at the way that Tableau is building the query. Mm -hmm. And you might find uh, areas which aren't optimized. And so what you might do is change the way the chart is built so those queries are optimized. Or you might change the way the database behaves so that that query is optimized. And exactly. better, better optimized queries means uh, they're basically asking for just the right amount of data in the right way so that you can then work with it in your visualization or in your database. It's basically building, um, saying something in the most efficient manner, right? I think yeah, is the exactly. best way to put it. Um, exactly. Because once we start talking about queries, I always think of translation analogies is the easiest way to understand these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and in this in this sort of thing, you're basically saying that if you know it's when you start learning German, for example, and you're saying can you point me to the left-hand directions to the pub or something like that in a long-winded yeah. way? But then when you start learning a bit more and optimizing your language, mm -hmm. you're more likely to speak in colloquialism saying, where's the pub? Exactly, exactly. And and so you kind of hit the nail on the head there. The way you get better at query optimization is to surround yourself with people who are good at that kind of language, right? Right. And it's because it because it it's the kind of thing in a database and even just in general in terms of research, it it's it's very hard to yield results. And so there are not many researchers that actually are good at this because it's just simply the kind of thing that takes so long. And even let's say you spent five years researching a certain type of query optimization, it might not actually yield any results that are beneficial in today's sort of enterprise context. And so when Tableau acquired uh, Hyper, it just so happened that one of the leading uh, sort of um, thoughts on query optimization 
happened to also be on the Hyper Project, and that was Dr. Thomas Neumann. And so <laughs> in many ways, that was something that Tableau very lucky with. But we should also highlight that Tableau's own team have actually been, you know, from the top, very, very upfront about improving the way that queries are done and Correct. making sure that queries are always optimized. So I'd say this is a small point, but it just it adds sort of a weight to Tableau's uh, sort of research and, uh, you know, push to make better optimized queries for a whole range of databases and that Tableau sort of interacts with. Exactly. I think it's, this is the thing that Tableau teams do very, very well um, in terms of they'll push their own boundaries as far as they can go. And then they'll mm -hmm. appreciate the fact that they need to bring in some external uh, influences to help develop the products further. So, for example, uh, Hyper was one. And then we had the um, natural language processing company that was bought uh, yeah. a couple of years ago now or last year mm -hmm. um, just to help push that like that, that thinking process further and move that needle along uh, to keep up with the, the market and the changing world we live in. And also another thing to touch on is Tableau's research team in general. Um, if you go on research.tableau.com, you'll find that a lot of the, the prominent thinkers in the space we all, we, we work in, um, in data and data visualization and mapping and now databases and optimizations. Um, Tableau has a lot of that the, the the leading thinkers in in those in those fields like um, i'm thinking maureen stone uh, on color theory uh you've got robert Cossar on storytelling um sarah battersby on mapping um so it's very much something that's on on Tal yeah. tableau's mind in terms of innovation it's part of the dna of how they work you know very right. research driven and they they put as much effort into research as they do into building their product which is what makes their product better it's research driven and innovation driven mm -hmm. and that's the point um, and so that's that's sort of the first step, right? When you're talking to a database, you you build a query, and if that query is optimized, then the database is more likely to respond faster and better, and it should also take less time because you're getting it to do exactly what you need it to do. Right. Now, there is actually another step uh, between the query optimization, so writing a better SQL query and actually getting a response back to the um, to from from the database about that query. And for this, I'm going to talk about query compilation. Okay, So when you write SQL, that is essentially um, code that you and me can read. Uh, in fact, in Tableau, if you uh, record the performance of any workbook connected to a database um, and then you stop the recording, you'll get a view that shows you all the queries that were sent to a database and the SQL that was written to request that data. Now, when you actually fire off that SQL query, the computer can't read that. And by that, I mean the processor itself does not take your nicely uh, sort of human-readable SQL and mm -hmm. process that. What it actually does is it converts that SQL query, essentially that code and instruction you've given it, into something called machine code. And machine code is quite simply put ones <laughs> and zeros, okay? I, yeah, I'm I mean, not going to go into more detail than that because... <laughs> Yeah, no, neither of us experts on how the, the nooks and crannies <laughs> of machine code work. But yeah. again, it's effectively a translation system, right? It's exactly, changing exactly. it from uh, a language that me, you and me understand and cutting out the middleman of, let me just quickly stage this and change it and basically saying, hey, uh, let me help you communicate this better. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it's just ones and zeros and lots of numbers. If you saw it, you'd think, what is this? It looked like the matrix. It literally looked like the matrix. Um, and so if we take a step back, 
what the team at Hyper discovered, and it's actually, uh, there's a paper that they refer to, which was written by MonetDB, which is another database, where MonetDB essentially proved that even their hand-coded C program-based queries performed faster than a computer-generated uh, or computer-compiled code. And so what I'm saying here is that when the team took a query and wrote it in machine code, essentially ones and zeros, and then they got their database to try and do the same thing, the hand-coded version was still faster than what the machine had created for itself. Which, <laughs> if you think about it, is actually doesn't make sense, right? Why, no, why can't a computer can create machine code that it can read as fast as we can write for it, if that makes sense? And so this is what Hyper tried to answer. And, 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 and it actually goes back into just how the database itself is built. And to, to kind of keep this short and sort of unobstruse and, <laughs> and not <laughs> abstract, um, what, what Hyper basically does is it kind of plays into this. When you, when you send it a SQL query, it doesn't process that SQL. What it actually does is it converts that SQL into machine code. And it does that by writing something called LLVM. And LLVM is, uh, is an acronym. But in, in summary, LLVM is the intermediate step between machine code and uh, a, programmer, a programmer's code. So let's say you do HTML coding or let's say you do SQL programming. Yeah? What you write is a conduit that then gets compiled into machine code for the computer to process. And LLVM is essentially much, much, much simpler. It's basically one step ahead of that. So if you were to send LLVM to a computer, it would then almost instantaneously convert that into machine code that it could then process straight away. So it's it's one level in between what a programmer writes and what a machine understands. Okay? Exactly. And that, that's, that's that translation step that I keep referring yeah, back to. Exactly. That, that, that's what it's doing effectively, right? Yeah, exactly. And so... What and, and so what happens here is that because because Hyper is doing this, you, you're actually able to get highly specialized and highly optimized queries um, generated um, for the CPU in question. Because the other thing to bear in mind is that not every CPU is the same. Every single year, new CPUs come out. New manufacturers compile different instruction sets into their CPUs. And so being able to compile instruction sets that are specific to that CPU allows you to do optimizations for that query that only you could take advantage of in that specific processor. So when I say CPU, I mean processor. Um, I have to keep you have to keep reminding me to kind of yeah these acronyms <laughs> yeah right and then the, the, the two, two types of two like main types of processors in the market today are you've got AMD Athlon well no Athlon's a type so AMD and yep. um, Intel of course is Intel the, the, AMD the, the Intel You've got another sort of um, split going on, which is between ARM, uh, ARM-based ARM processors, and Intel-based processors, and you know all all this, all this stuff is is massively, massively in flux at the moment. Um, and and so the benefit here is that, you know, you're probably wondering, okay, so what if it can comp compile this faster? So what if it can, you know, get this all done? What's the value, and, Tim? What, what's what, the value? What, what, yeah. what am I seeing as a user of Tableau that's better? Okay, so it essentially comes down to speed and basically how close you can get your SQL query to the computer's um, sort of processing, okay? And mm -hmm. this is this is two-pronged. So number one, 
it's taking less time to write the um, SQL query because you're optimizing it. Number yep. two, you're then translating that into machine code a lot faster than it would traditionally take because you're doing it uh, using that middle step I described called LVM. Mm -hmm. And then earlier on, we talked about memory, okay? So memory is a really, really important thing in this game because when you're doing all that work, you need to be able to put what you're doing somewhere. So if you give me a pack of cars and you tell me to memorize the order in which they are, I need to be able to put what I memorize somewhere. And for me, that's my brain. But imagine if I had to write it down, that would take me longer to write that down. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that my brain and my memory is better than my handwritten memory, which it isn't. <laughs> but assume I had to write it down, I'd actually physically have to wait for me to see the card, write it down, get make sure I've written it down correctly, go to the next card. And so you start to get a picture. This is taking time. And so in computing terms, um, what this relates to is essentially how far away you are from the job that is actually being done. Yep. And by this, I mean how far is the information that's needed away how far away is it from the computer the actual processing that's being done and it's hard to sort of imagine this because in in real terms this is all happening inside of your laptop there's no there's no great With almost no yeah. delay yeah. and it's exactly. just happening yeah. right we're talking about infinitesimally small periods of time that massively scale up and so we're just going to sort of try and give an analogy right so if i put a bit of information inside of my processor inside of my computer's processor that is the equivalent of having that information on my desk in terms of you know if i'm doing something and i need it, i need it on my desk that's just like reaching across the table and grabbing it from my desk okay now, so that's you getting your list of the yeah, cards you memorized right exactly i've just literally picked up the list from my desk and i'm now reading it mm -hmm. straight away now imagine that that list that i've written down is now no longer on my desk imagine it's on the bookshelf Okay, now that's still in the same room. So I just get up off my chair and I go to my bookshelf. Not yep. so hard. Now, imagine that that list is actually next door. So I have to get up, go out the door, go next door, get it, look on the right bookshelf, pick it up, come back, sit down, read it, and then process it. Okay, you're starting to get the idea here. It's getting taking longer and longer <laughs> and longer. It's more and more tenuous. Exactly, more and more tenuous. Now, imagine we are where we need to be, which is RAM. So random access memory, what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Okay. Now, RAM is the equivalent of being in the building next door. So imagine that I'm sitting in my office and I realize I need that list of cards. What I've got to do is get up, go out, go into the lift or call the lift, wait for it to go down, go down, go out, go into the other building, go to reception, you know, do whatever <laughs> you need to do, get to the floor that has your, your list get the list, and then do all of that to come back again. That is actually what random access memory is like, okay? And that sounds really, really slow. But wait till I explain how a hard drive actually works. You see, when your computer talks to your hard drive, in real terms, that's the equivalent of having your list on the other side of the planet, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so although your hard drives and SSDs are getting ridiculously fast, in, in, in computing terms, the information is actually being stored incredibly far away. And this all gets in the way of processing data and processing information very, very quickly. And so because Hyper does as much of its processing in memory as it possibly can, it's, effect it's effectively minimizing the, the travel between 
um, the data and where the processing is done. So it's essentially the difference between going to the building next door and going to the other side of the planet. That's basically the best way to, the, the best way to think of it. And so in summary, you know, a lot of databases today use the hard drive option. They don't store a lot of information in memory. In fact, they don't store much, if at all, um, information in memory. It's all read from disks or read from right. the hard drive. <clears throat> and then if, if you add in the factor that a lot of these databases are behind firewalls and have security mm -hmm. layers and authentication options, you start to see like the fact that you're sending off a query and the fact it's taking a while to come back to you, it's all relative to all of these different things added up together so yeah exactly sure it might be in a hard drive but then also you have to jump over all of these different things to get to the other side of the earth in this case exactly um before you're getting your response which is why you sort of get people's uh, annoyance with the fact that it takes ages to query big data as it were yeah exactly it's it's and it, it's funny because you know you will get technologies uh, you get you know you get companies who claim to have databases that are super fast, but what they're doing is essentially brute forcing this approach, which is uh, they're storing all of this um, information in an architecture in an architectural format where basically the computer knows where absolutely every single bit of data is. So it's actually cheating. It's a bit like having. Uh, yes, your data might actually be next door, but what you go and do is you go take a picture of it on your iPhone. So mm -hmm. next time you need it, you don't actually have to go next door. You just pull out your phone and look at the list, right? But it still takes you time to open up, get your phone out, look at that list. And that's still not as fast as having it, you know, just, just right next to you, okay? Mm -hmm. And so um, the other thing is that we're talking about having everything in memory. And that is not a sort of computing world we're in yet. Uh, we still all have SSDs and hard drives, whilst the cost is prohibitive to have RAM-only systems. But, uh, you know, technologies like this already exist. Intel, for example, have a hard drive you can purchase, which is all based on RAM. It's just all RAM. It's a 200 gig RAM-based hard drive. There's no hard drive other than that. And it persists the information you store on it when you switch it off. And that's actually the technological challenge. How can you get these memory systems to keep the information they have in them so that they're continuously fast all the time um and so that that's sort of the the, the third thing in in hyper's sort of trick book of tricks okay uh, how do you process information quickly and how do you get it quickly now the last one uh the last key sort of technical technological uh achievement for hyper is the way that it parallelizes tasks. I can't, can never say that phrase properly, so excuse <laughs> me. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Parallelization. I think I said that right this time. So yeah. parallelization is the concept here. And in Hyper's academic paper, they actually call it um, something, they call it morsel-driven parallelization. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to go straight to analogies here because it's much simpler. <laughs> Imagine I've got a cake, okay? And I have four people. Yeah. Now, in modern terms, that's a four-core CPU. That's a, com a computer processing unit with four computer cores, okay? And the, the, the most effective way of actually divvying that cake up is to cut it into four, right? And then I feed, it, I feed each quarter to each person, okay? And the task here is to finish eating the cake, okay? Now, you immediately get problems. For example, what if you're one of those people, Ravi, and you eat cake faster than everyone else, okay? Yep. 
you're going to finish your cake much sooner. And then in terms of in, in computing terms, you're going to have nothing to do whilst me and maybe two other people are being polite about eating our cake. You know, we're, we're taking our time. And meanwhile, you've got nothing to do. Okay. Yeah. The other problem here is that what if a fifth person turns up and I've already cut the cake in four? It's actually quite hard to just recut the cake into five pieces once I've already cut it into four. I have to go figure out like how much I take off each person's cake. And then, and then that person just... gets like a part yeah. of a cake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if if you turn up halfway, people have already eaten cake. And if you're eating cake faster than everyone else, I've, I've got even more complicated maths to do here. And although a computer could do it very quickly, it's still not an efficient way of doing it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the key challenge here is how do you parallelize a task? Okay. And the way Hyper does it, to, to simplify it, is it actually cuts the cake into millions of pieces. Okay. And it basically right. puts those pieces onto a table. And then it looks to see, well, who, who's here to eat the cake? Then it just tells everyone, just start eating. Don't worry about which pit, bits you're eating, just start eating the cake. And so everyone's eating cake. And because the bits are so small, if you eat cake faster than everyone else, Ravi, that means you get a bigger share of the cake. There's no sort of uh, equal division based on the number of people in the room. It's just lots of pieces, off you go. And if a fifth person turns up midway, they can also contribute to the task. And if someone has to you know, go away and do something else, which in computing terms is a processor doing another task, mm-hmm. then that also works. And it essentially means that when everyone finishes eating cake, Everyone still finishes at the rough same amount of time because if you're eating faster, you just eat more cake. And if you eat slower, you just eat less cake. And so this this has actually got a, a wonderful sort of name to it. This this guy called Amdal who uh, writ, wrote a law. Okay, And when we actually apply it to computers, you start to understand why this is a big challenge. If I take a very simple 32-core Tableau server, okay, and I... I Let's assume we're just sending it one task and 95% of that task can be paralyzed, parallelized, okay? And so by that, I mean, if I'm cutting a cake and the task is to eat the cake, there might be one task, which is uh, let me know when the cake is finished, okay? And that task can't be paralyzed because it essentially, it's essentially one person's responsibility to basically look at the cake and watch the table and let me know when the cake is finished. So... If I parallelize a task to about 95%, okay, across 32 cores, what actually ends up happening is that I only get a 40% utilization of my 32 cores. Because of the way the maths works and the way that the parallelization has a drop-off, right, it basically means that even with more power, you don't exactly see the benefits. And this is the problem with enterprise hardware and enterprise architecture is that you don't actually get... Uh, massively uh, parallelized tasks and this is how you know hyper sort of combats this by doing this morsel driven parallelization it's building resilience against something called skew and skew is essentially the difference between how processes perceive a task and when they start and when they finish them okay and so right. that's that's one of the sort of the big benefits um I would give another example, which is very simple. If you have a task that's nearly 100% parallelized, so 99% parallelization, you have 200 cores, you only get a 63 speed uh, improvement, even though you have 200 cores compared to just a single core. And that means you get about 32% utilization. Again, because the drop-off rate 
yep. is 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 really bad. And so the more cores you shove in there, it doesn't actually mean the more speed you get. And so you're not taking full advantage of the CPU cores that are actually sitting on your computer. I guess the tricky part is that fact that you know it's it's such a big change from moving away from the old system as it was, right? Yeah. Like yeah. What, what what we have here and what hyper compared to what hyper's doing is this is what's revolutionary. This I think this is the big crux of it right it's this yeah. processing speed and the fact it's it's compiling a query in such a different way mm-hmm. um that it's it's just completely different and it's hard for a competing technology to do it similar unless it's a new competing technology right but i'm, I'm talking about the old school enterprise yeah. level yeah um enterprise level databases and data warehouses that do this a bit differently exactly in many ways you could only really build a database like this if you started building it today which is what which is what essentially Hyper is. Hyper has been built out of a modern perspective and a modern way of thinking about this. And you might ask, well, why don't all databases do this? And the long, well, the short answer is that it's a lot of work. If you've built an infrastructure that lots of enterprises rely upon and you suddenly try and change it, that's going to cause bugs. It's going to cause sort of a poor performance for a period of time. So the only way you can get the real benefit is by building something from scratch. And... You can obviously understand why that's not in the best interests of, of some of the existing incumbents, right? Um, you kind of you don't want to have to tell your customers, hey, by the way, we're building an entirely new way of working with databases. It might cause problems, but trust me, it's better. Whereas, you know, Tableau customers have, I think, have traditionally shown that they are interested in new ways of doing things. And at least for now, Tableau can take advantage of the fact that they have a clean sheet and they're building a database from scratch in a modern world compared to the world we lived in 20 years ago yeah so um what i think that tableau um might struggle with here is just the adoption understanding like i don't think i think that a lot of the times when it's being mentioned about hyper being this innovative process it's not given its dues in terms of that advantage Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. because of this thing like we're saying it's faster but we're not you don't want to explain like everything you just went through about career compilation. Like imagine saying <laughs> yeah. that in like an elevator pitch. Like you, if, if you're speaking to a C-suite guy, he's like, I, but I don't care. Like I don't, under, I don't if fundamentally care why it's faster. Is it faster? And am I going to get my results quicker? And with all due respect to the researchers and, and you know, the people, the smart minds behind this, yeah, like I'm massively simplifying what I'm saying and I barely <laughs> understand it. It's like, I read the first page of one of the papers on hyper. Yeah. And I, I it's called fast serializable multi-version concurrency control for main memory database systems <laughs> and i was just like whoa whoa what, what? Uh, mvcc <laughs> for main memory database systems of course i was just like what it, what does that even mean and uh, and, it, and that's the thing you're you're talking about incredibly deep level of sort of understanding and the the you know what everyone takes away from it is it's faster and it's it's actually not just that it's it's there's a lot more to it and I you know people just need to spend a bit more time but but to, I think with the I think yeah. yeah but I think fundamentally it's faster is an easy way of doing it because as we mentioned Dr Thomas Domin is one of what five people I don't know I don't it's know like what the landscape of, is a handful yeah. of researchers that handful of research that, that do this and understand it at that level. Um, which is why, is again, I, I, a lot should be a lot more should be made of the fact that in buying Hyper, they also got one of the leading thinkers in this space, mm-hmm. um, and it's people like him. It's sort of like when when we um when you speak to a developer at Tableau and then they're asking you like, oh, so um, 
what what are your opinions on you know what would happen with this thing that we've done it's like that's like i trust your judgment it's in a similar way i trust this guy's judgment that what he's doing is the best and most optimal way right like i'm not yeah. gonna be like wait a second i've got a good idea about mvcc um i don't have that knowledge to do so um but understanding this allows me to be a bit more like hey when i'm troubleshooting or i'm trying to understand why something's slow is it me no no it could just be the database it could be the fact that when i'm making this query it's not as optimized as it could be or yeah, when i'm exactly uh, when i'm working with this database and i'm trying to convert it to a hyper what could be happening is this it gives me that sort of understanding about why things are happening um yeah. rather than sort of i'm now going to go away and start working on my own um hyper database right exactly um, exactly and it's actually quite hard to do if you're an incumbent. Um, exactly. So the funny thing is, all this research is published; it's out there, and you know, there's in a funny way, uh, Tableau is being very transparent about the innovation here because this is all available to public, and the ideas and the papers are all out there. Other people could very much just read these and think of similar similar concept, maybe even better concepts. Um, exactly, and similar to VizQL, like you can sort of see what VizQL is doing, but you you'd be hard pressed to actually replicate and do the exact same thing yourself. Because what what people often forget is Tableau's developers and the product launch teams are like three versions ahead of what mm -hmm. we see, right? So they're mm -hmm. using it completely. Might even be using completely different technology to what we are seeing and using today, the stable version. So. I think what you what you what you said earlier was right. Like I think the the competitive advantage that Tableau have in this case is the fact that every database can't do this. At least the old school ones can't because they'll have to yeah. fundamentally change the core of it. Right? It's it's mm -hmm. exactly how the processing works that has to be changed. Um, and, and I guess that, go on. And that's the hard thing, you know, steering the you know the the cruise liner once it's heading in a certain direction right. is really really hard. And I, and I think that's uh, this leads us really nicely to the now what, which is like, okay, we've now talked about this bit about the hyper and mm -hmm. um, the innovations and all of these different things about query compilation, LLVM and all these complex stuff, which basically fun, boils down to it's a bit fast. It query, it, it's, <laughs> it's translating a lot quicker yeah. and um, it's able to be more flexible, right? In, in, yeah. in how, it, how it approaches a task. Yeah, uh, those are much. three fundamental things, right? Um, but for me, when, when we when we sort of start reading through this and finding about a bit more, is it's the future that's really exciting, right? The fact exactly. that the fact that Tableau's changed from a TD to a .hyperfile means that they're able to then say, okay, cool. So we've now got something that's doing things faster in these nanoseconds. How can we use that to leverage and get a marginal increase in how we're how we're approaching like fizz and tooltips, right? How how can we yeah. use this to make um, uh, tableau prep so much better than already is right exactly and 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 that's the thing i think that is 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 hard to miss here you know things like tableau prep uh, are only really possible because of the innovation in hyper you know charts and tooltips again only really possible because of the you know the integration of hyper and it wasn't and even until... even then you've got a bit of lag right like when yeah, you, the, yeah. there's still that tiny tiny second when you hover over something and it's like oh god let me go fetch that chart but it's still fetching that chart doing the filtering and everything yeah. you've set up to do for you in that moment yeah exactly exactly and and i think if you if you if you're looking at the now what um sort of piece the the key thing i'd say here is that what hyper ends up being actually once you take all this into account is it ends up enabling a type of database that hasn't traditionally existed before in a typical enterprise context today you have 
a transactional system. So this is basically your bread and butter. This is how all businesses work. These are the same kind of, you know, systems that if they go down, you can't take transactions on a website and everything stops. You literally can't do anything else. And then analytics, which is a function of of those transactions, is done on a, in, on a separate layer. So you have maybe an ETL process or workflow that takes the data from your transactional-based systems and does it in the analytical systems. And so what you're doing with analytical systems is scanning data. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing with transactional systems is actually editing and modifying individual rows. And those two things are massive, uh, so different in terms of the requirements they have. And then you also have um, what's typically called beyond relational activities. Um, And so these are things like, you know, charting, Hadoop, data mining, things that happen another layer above analytics because they need to happen on a much sort of longer timescales. And it's actually hard to have all these systems in one place because they're all so far removed from the raw data that happens and so the real and also, rep- and also this is where you get that latency between yeah you yeah. know you have the fact you, you you got all your transaction transactional data going into one place mm-hmm. then you have to do some etl on top of that to put it into yeah. your analytics uh, like data warehouse mm-hmm. and then you can do your your actual analytics right like that that's exactly it's those three-step processes that then add time and computational power and, and ultimately cost Exactly. You you have three instances of the same thing basically because you because of business continuity or uh, you know risk factors you you can't afford to do analytics on on your on the data you should be doing analytics on and so uh, Hyper tries to sort of solve this by basically offering um, one one place to do this all and I think that the easiest way to sort of draw people's attention to this is the demo in the Vegas conference where they had on stage. Um, a large amount of weather data from the US. And what they mm-hmm. were doing is they were loading, they were reading data from a hyper extract. Number one, it created it really quickly. And even after it created it, what they ended up doing is loading data into the extract without having to refresh the extract. And so this is this is this is sort of this idea of being able to do analytics on your transactional data. And then being able to do other bits of sort of analysis on top of that. And if you think of Tableau Prep with technologies such as Python and R being integrated, you mm-hmm. start to be able to do data mining, uh, analytics, and all of this stuff all in one place, in one sort of architecture, as Tableau calls it, the Tableau platform, as it were. Exactly. And, and this, is, this is the stuff that people often miss out, right? The fact that th- this technology is enabling so much um, in the back end, um, and it's helping the developers at Tableau understand a bit better about like, hang on, hang on, hang on. So wait, so if I compile this query in this way rather than the previous way, I'm now getting what an X, whatever X improvement. Yeah. Why am I not doing it that way? And then you're suddenly unleashed into the wild and able to sort of build out further, right? So. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Well, that was that was really dense, wasn't it? That was very dense. Yeah, that, that's that's something to really like. You, you, it wakes you up in the morning. If this is if uh, the what so what now what podcast is part of your morning commute, then this will definitely definitely get your brain in gear. And I have, we really, I have to say, I feel like an imposter. I, I I feel like an imposter because I have maligned and massively simplified a whole bunch of really advanced uh, concepts throughout throughout the whole entire pod. But it's it's really interesting. You know, as Ravi said, definitely check out the 
the research pages on the Tableau website. Hyper actually has its own website. You can go to if you just Google Hyper, um, Hyper database, you'll find their website. And on there, they actually publish all their white papers going mm-hmm. all the way back to when they were founded up until today. They have about 50 or 60 no, um, papers that have now been published that basically touch on everything we've touched on in way more detail. The other, if, if, if you so wish to find out more, right? <laughs> yeah. The other gem is, if you can get hold of it, is the 2016 uh, recording from conference um, that basically it's called Boom. Uh, what is it called? Boom. There goes the database. It's it's a, basically it's a hyper presentation from the Austin 2016 conference, mm-hmm. um, and that basically summarizes how hyper works and how it's different to traditional databases. Uh, it's it's about 25 minutes long. It's really good. And there's obviously a Q&A at the end. That, um, it's funny. Most of the questions and answers um, from that 2016 sessions have now been answered. So it's a great, it's a great, <laughs> great thing to watch because we're now, um, you know, 2016, my word, we're, we're nearly years four on. years on. Yeah. So three years on, nearly four. And obviously we've seen Hyper now, but it also gives us a glimpse of what we haven't seen yet that is is going to come. So that that'll be really interesting. Exactly, it's it's quite fun looking back at like even old keynotes and sort of getting that glimpse into like, hang on a second, they've not talked about that for a while. And it's like, hang on, so maybe it's under wraps and they're going to do a exactly. big reveal. Exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, no, the, the, for me it's been really interesting mainly because it's it's given me a lot more um, topics to talk about and touch on and a, a better understanding of exactly what's going on and what's what. Um, mm-hmm. Which means I can speak a bit more intelligently about it rather than my, you know, my soundbite. But it's just faster. Let me show you this video from Craig Bloodworth where he's comparing <laughs> a TD extraction to a hyper extraction, how much faster it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's a lot more going on that that Tableau can leverage, and it's absolutely something that's quite exciting um, in terms of what's possible with it. Um, so yeah, no, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, you can obviously find us on our website, 3wattspod.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter or you can reach out to Ravi or myself on Twitter as well. Um, do be sure to check out the show notes. We add lots of valuable information in there. Um, show notes are now available in Apple Podcasts as well as Overcast or any other sort of podcast um, sort of app of choice. What do you use, Ravi? I've actually I've actually moved on to Overcast. Overcast, um, yeah, yeah, because it, it uh, for me the thing that's quite nice about Overcast is the speed controls. Oh um, yeah, I can two X and then also there's the smart speed function which like gets rid of silent periods in a podcast. Yeah. So like you, yeah. you don't get the awkward silences when some people are recording. Um, they just get cut out and it speeds up through it. Exactly. So exactly. You feel like you are learning a bit more in a small, small a shorter amount of time. Yeah, my 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 top recommendations on on iOS it would be Overcast and entirely free. If not Apple Podcasts, and then on Android, I think uh, Pocket Casts or TuneIn Radio, and also Google Podcasts now is a is a um, is a podcast app. So you can use any one of those apps. Um, you can obviously add our feed yourself if you can't find the podcasts on um, the podcast on those sites. Um, just head to our website and add the RSS feed, and you'll be able to listen on any podcast app of choice. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next podcast, which will be towards the end of Jan. Take it easy, folks.